Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Lexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Today we've got two guests. We've got Maximilian Alvarez and Rebecca Garelli. Uh, Max is the author slash facilitator, perhaps you might say, of a book called The Work of Living, Working People Talk About Their Lives in the Year the World Broke, which contains uh, numerous interviews with people uh, from gravedigger to educator to uh, sheet metal manufacturer to nurse and others uh, about what it was like to be working during the coronavirus pandemic. It's a very interesting conversation. There's just a ton of there's a ton of stuff to dig into, and we we barely scratched the surface of the book. That's right. We could have gone three hours today, actually. <laughs> yeah, easily, and it's a, it's a it's a longer episode, but it's worth it, you know, because we 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 dig into uh, the the nature of work during the pandemic and what the pandemic reveals about the actual social utility of the people who work and, you know, the people who are undervalued in the capitalist system that we live under. And under-resourced and, and the way that their lives have uh, given insight into the systemic problems that shape the conditions of their lives that were exacerbated during the pandemic and continue to be. And yet the reason they're so essential, the essential workers that they are, uh, is re reciprocally related to how much power uh, as workers in solidarity they could have if they choose to um, – come together to unite, uh, to empower each other against a system that is cruel and, um, and doesn't value their lives. Right. And so it's, it's really, uh, I think a beautiful mix of, um, you know, experiential wisdom as well as uh, theoretical insight and grounded in, uh, the, the very loving project that, uh, that Max Alvarez has been carrying on with his podcast, working people for, uh, like five seasons, something like that now. And, and now in his book. Um, so I really think people will, uh, will learn a lot from the episode and feel moved by it. And, uh, Hey, the book has been blurbed by Cornell West and Sarah Nelson. So it's another reason to check it out. It's nice. Yeah. So, um, before you get to that, we got to remind everyone, as usual, this podcast is sponsored by the American Prospect magazine. If you subscribe at the $10 a month tier, um, you'll get a free digital subscription to the magazine and a steeply discounted print subscription, if you so wish. Subscribe at $5 a month and you'll get access to our rather extensive library of bonus episodes and all future bonus episodes. But otherwise, you can just listen, uh, rate, review, whatever you may feel like doing. Engage your individual choice. We appreciate you in any case. But yeah, without further ado, let's get to our interview with uh, Max and Rebecca right now. So um, welcome to the show, Max and Rebecca. Uh, Max, my, my first question is for you. You know, your book, The Work of Living... Working people talk about their lives in the year the world broke. Um, it's it's a, a, a sort of a bunch of podcast transcripts, basically, like like uh, edited up into 
interviews and essays about people's personal experiences. Um, and so could you give us a sense? I mean, I'm sure you had quite a number to pick from, like how you settled on these folks, how you found them, because you have some very interesting characters in this book. Uh, some, some, uh, and we'll get to it later. Uh, but yeah, so where, where did you find these folks and sort of how did you decide on them as being, you know, you say not necessarily a cross section of society exactly, but as being like important stories to tell? Yeah, well, um, first of all, thanks so much for having me back on the show, you guys. It's great to see you both. Um, I feel like the last time we recorded was on the other side of the pandemic. That's right. <laughs> so, yeah. Before the time I've warp. Had, yeah, I've aged like 50 years since then. Um, but we're all still here, and that's something to be grateful for. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's a great question, Ryan, because, um, you know, frankly, the intro – to this book was originally like twice as long because I spent the whole time apologizing for all the people who weren't in it. Right. And eventually or books had to be like, all right, we get it. Like you wanted the book to be 10 times longer with a hundred different interviews. You couldn't have it like get over it. Um, <laughs> and you know, it was, it was a struggle that I tried to articulate in the introduction, right? Because, with a podcast, there are there are really important differences, although you're right that for the conversations themselves, I essentially wanted them to be like my show working people, long, sprawling, intimate one on one conversations that could go for an hour and a half, two hours, just us, just me and the other person I'm talking to. And then, yeah, kind of working through the transcript for text. But, um, you know, that in a lot of ways is kind of where the similarities stop because um, with a podcast, you know, the medium is so much more forgiving in, in so many different ways. Like I am partial to the medium of audio in general, because I feel like it's the most intimate medium to have these kinds of conversations. Right. I mean, Rebecca and I had chatted like a couple times before this really deep and, and, and open and honest and, and, uh, sprawling conversation that we got to record for the book. <clears throat> I think there's something really special about being able to chat to someone over the phone, uh, like this. And so I was kind of worried about how that would translate to text, but also like with a podcast ever since the first season of working people, you know, I could always, I was always mindful of like the responsibility of building an archive that in some way was working as a representation of who and what the working class is, right? And I never wanted to define that myself for the listener. I wanted that understanding of who and what the working class is to sort of arise from all these different personal stories across now five seasons, right? But that's the thing. Even though that's a tremendous responsibility that I take very seriously, you can always add more to the catalog, right? You can always flesh it out. You can always respond more quickly to things going on in the country or beyond the country. Um, you can usually kind of produce stuff relatively quickly. A book is a whole different animal, as you well, no. Uh, congrats on your book, by the way. Um, and so this is all a long preamble to say, like, it made me exceedingly nervous to do a book like this. Uh, and I was tremendously anxious 
about the finite limits of a book and a publisher telling me that I had 10 interviews. Right. Um, and, um, so like, as I explained in the, in the introduction, right. I, I did of course want to be as, or, or cast as wide of a net as I possibly could in terms of where people worked, the kind of work that they did, the kind of people they were, and even the kinds of experiences of COVID-19 that they may have had. Um, you know, and I say may because in a lot of ways I didn't know all the intimate details until the conversations happened. I think that's what makes them really special. Um, so like I, I did think about that, right? Um, with Rebecca, I was lucky because like I knew I wanted to interview someone whose job was a full-time organizer. Right. Um, I also wanted to interview an educator. And so thankfully, um, I believe it was the great Rebecca Given who connected us. Um, I got a two for one with Rebecca. <laughs> so like, so it, it was really, really fun to talk to her about both the education side and the organizer side and how to educate organizer side. Right. So it was like a really great conversation that you know, again, just kind of going into it, I was like, I want to talk to someone who is actually trying to organize workers in this moment. And what an incredible connection I got to make with Rebecca, who anyone who reads the book will see just how uh, brilliant and amazing uh, of a firecracker that she is and what an incredible story that she's had. And, and you know, in a lot of ways, that's kind of how the book developed, right? It was this touch and go between intention and fortune, like, and, and just allowing myself to be open to the different connections that people would make for me. Um, and the different sorts of relationships that built in the process. Like I tried really hard to get someone who was in prison in this book, but that didn't happen. Um, and, Largely because prisons became such horrific hotspots of just endless COVID waves um, throughout the pandemic that the one time I got close uh, to interviewing someone who was incarcerated, they ended up having a major outbreak uh, at their prison. So that didn't work out, right? You know, the, again, there were a lot of attempts that that didn't work out, but I'm incredibly grateful to everyone I was able to connect with. Um, but yeah, I mean, I knew that I wanted to. Uh, uh, both interview like older folks, younger folks. I wanted to interview folks whose jobs had been recognized officially as quote unquote essential by the government, by the media in the early days of COVID. But it was also really important to me to, to lift up the voices of folks who were doing essential labor, even if it wasn't called that. Right. So I wanted to talk to people about parenting during COVID-19. I wanted to talk to someone in the sex trade or adjacent to the sex trade. I wanted to talk to someone in, in the service industry to see what they were going through. Right. So, so that's a long kind of rambling way of, of talking about it. But in a lot the last thing I would say is I did, I do owe so much of this book to the camaraderie and, and, uh, amazing help that so many folks gave me in, in so many different ways. If that was just my family supporting me when I was a pain in the ass about it, my editors supporting me when I was a pain in the ass about it, but also again, Rebecca given for connecting me to Rebecca here, right? Lauren Carolee Gurley wrote this incredible piece for vice in the early days about 
grave diggers. And I was like, I got to talk to one of these guys. And so thankfully, Lauren connected me to Nick Galupo, who was an incredible human being, right? I knew Willie Solis from the podcast, Working People. I knew what an incredible, uh, incredibly hard worker and incredible organizer he was. So it, again, it was kind of a mishmash of stuff. But I think that what sings through in these interviews is, you know, just that rich individuality that every person has, the 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 different ways that that they experience the world and COVID nineteen, but you also really start to hear those commonalities in the different stories as well. And so, yeah, I'm just very very grateful that I got the opportunity to do it. So, Rebecca, um, you are, as Max <laughs> said, an educator and an organizer, and um, you you are a <clears throat> You are currently in uh, the Phoenix area uh, in Arizona, which uh, if I um, any degree of familiarity with Phoenix is currently about a quadrillion degrees in the shade, Um, you know, nuclear fusion levels of hot. Um, But so can you give us, you know, a, a, a brief sort of overview of, you know, what you're talking about uh, with Max, you know, how, how you sort of got into organizing the teachers um, and, you know, your struggles during the pandemic and how that reflects on this current debate that's going on about like, quote unquote, learning loss. Uh, so, you you know, we had during the pandemic virtual schooling for months, sometimes years, uh, you know, on and off, depending on the district. It seems plausible to me. Uh, that that was not great for the students. You know, the virtual experience really isn't the same thing as having a teacher in the classroom talking to you. So I have some sympathy for that argument. But you have this sort of like, you know, pressure saying like, oh, we never should have shut down the schools because it screwed up all our human capital. Our future office drones are going to be messed up by uh, not being able to, you know, they're, they're not going to be perfectly suited for a job at target. Um, and, and it, it strikes me that there's like a sort of third way that is just gone sort of systematically foreclosed, uh, not sort of to ask a leading question exactly. Uh, but, but to, to like think about education in this, in the sense of like doing the best we can all the time, and not just saying like, oh, there's a quick solution here is to rip off the Band-Aid stuff everyone back into schools, regardless of how unsafe it is. So give us the background and then that sort of like the context now. Sorry, big question. Yeah, that is a big question. Um, so I have lots of thoughts on this, right? This is what I live and breathe every day of my life and have for the last 18 years I've been an educator. Uh, But really for me, where I started was, as I'm sure you read in the book, was Chicago Teachers Union. And it really had a massive impact. And uh, I had a radicalizing moment, which I described in the book, where I was very poorly treated by management, by my principal. And uh, after, you know, tapping the shoulder of the union, I uh, won. I, I won the money I needed back. I got paid as under the wrong position for quite a while. And I was missing about $10,000 from my paycheck. And I went to the union and I talked to you about my 
we call we call each other i'm like her her union daughter and she's my union mama right like miss collins um so miss collins really really taught me about power early on and the power of the union um and and she helped me uh by threatening a grievance right i i really wasn't afraid to use that word because um I feel like I'm a, I, I have a pretty strong personality regardless. Like I'm, I'm pretty strong willed and will advocate for myself in, in many situations. I'm usually not afraid of conflict or I'm not afraid of confrontation. I welcome it. Cause that's the only way you plow through things. Right. And you figure out how to solve problems. And so that really radicalized me that moment where I was treated so poorly. And then I had a, a way to build power though. And then actually winning, right. How often do we actually win? And I won very early on, very early on. And from that moment, I just knew, like, this is where I belong. I, I knew I found my place in the world within the union, right? Like, some people have church, some people have other social things. Like, the union is where I felt I belonged because I loved the idea of power and pushing back against ridiculous mandates left and right. And so that put me down a path, really, of... Um, as I mentioned in the book, I I basically was peer pressured in my entire faculty was like, Rebecca's got a strong back. She's got a strong spine. Let's get her on the local school council. And so I basically everyone asked me to run. I ran. I got elected very easily. I sat on that board for two years, which is basically like a governing board, uh, you know, seat at the school level, not at like a massive district level. In Chicago, all the schools have a local school council. So it's a governing body within the school and the community. So it's really important. And I served as the voice of the teacher for two years. So I would, you know, I would talk to people, I would organize, I'd say, what kind of issues, right? What are the issues? What do we want to do about them? And I started to learn to talk like an organizer because I had to be that voice. I had no choice. I was elected. I got put in, I did it. And then, um, Come, you know, leading up to, I think, you know, 2010, I watched uh, what happened in Florida with the wear red for public ed down there. And I, I started really paying attention. And then 2011, I think, was Wisconsin. And then, you know, CTU sent buses or red shirts up to support the Wisconsin teachers. And then we went on strike in 2012. And it really it hasn't stopped for me since then. Right. Like it's. There are, I, I've quit the classroom twice, actually. I quit in Chicago in 2015 to go work at a university for two years because the system broke me, quite honestly. Um, and then I quit again um, in 2019 when I um, actually stopped classroom teaching, but I became more of an organizer here. So really it all started with CTU and learning how to organize my building through CTU. And during the 2012 strike, um, I became not the strike captain, but like, you know, maybe like the second tier strike captain. And we had our phone trees and I put my name in that space and it held me accountable. And it gave me a reason to, you know, be involved and advocate and be active and get my boots on the ground because I was responsible for all those people down the phone tree line for me. Right. So I understood the power and how to organize a building from, you know, embracing this role in the 2012 strike. And many of the tactics uh, we implored in Chicago in 2012, like building up to that incredible strike was the escalation tactics we used here in Arizona. I literally stole all of the ideas from Chicago, sprinkled in a couple new creative ones, but really 
It was about being positioned in the community because we know teachers have one of the greatest positions in society because we have that access point to all kinds of workers, all kinds of families, all kinds of um, even, you know, my students who, you know, came came from Mexico and, and had ice knocking on their door. I became an ally to them. They would ask me to write letters in support of their family and I would do it. Right. So we had this positionality within our system that really I, I, I realized the power of that positionality. Right. And how we have access to all the working class through our community. And my community was very, very behind us during the strike. So we organized walk-ins and we had parents bringing coffee and donuts and making signs with us. And it was incredible. And so through that experience, I learned about organizing and I didn't really have the language I have now to be like, oh, we mapped our workplace. Oh, we, you know, boom, union language. We did this tactic or this. And now I understand all of those tactics because I got a second try at it out here. And my job was to explain it to everybody out here. Right. So the teacher, you know, I became a teacher, which means I internalized it more. And I, I just loved it so much that I haven't stopped since then. But really, like, I've been paying attention to education and the demoralization for a very long time. And I myself became so demoralized that I left this system when I had my first, my first kid. Um, And so when I moved out here in 2017, it was, you know, after, after my amazing experience in Chicago and, and, you know, committing to myself that I would never let anybody take away my dignity in the workplace after that radicalization I had. And I came out here And the working conditions were so horrific that I just, I could not even bear it because my dignity was now gone in a variety of ways. And so it just, it sank in my soul, just inside me for so long. And I was just so angry that even the first month of being in my position here, I taught uh, seventh grade science, seventh uh, math and science. And uh, I had 34 kids and I had six classes a day. I had nowhere for them to work in groups. My classroom was so small. I had barely enough furniture. And then as soon as um, like, let's say a teacher um, is out for the day, there's no substitutes. So they take those 34 kids in that classroom, divide them up and shove them in your classroom. So I'd have kids show up. I'd plan a science experiment for 34 kids. I'd have six more kids show up. They're sitting on the floor working out of paper packets. I mean, it was atrocious. And the kids don't deserve that. I certainly don't deserve that. And what does that say about education here, right? What what is what do they value when things like this happen? That's a question I kept asking myself. And then it was my science materials were old. And from 2004, I had old chemicals and old textbooks and really old, just really, really old stuff, Um it seems that Arizona is not very fond of progress, as I'm sure you all know this. Um, and that was hard for me. And it really was one condition after another. And I'm sitting here going, why does anyone put up with this? Why are you doing this? Our principal would have us, you know, have staff meetings after school, which were not written in my contract, which means the answer is no. <laughs> and so I became this person who pushed back immediately and agitated on my campus almost every day of my life. And to the point where I was like, why, what, what is going on here? Why, you know, I know it's a right to work state. I understand like the union has a stigma with it. I get it. But like, why do we just go along with the status quo? 
This is a place where you don't ruffle feathers. This is a place where you don't have power. You're afraid to use your power, right? So I internalized that. And quite frankly, after Parkland, Florida happened and I sat in my car and I listened to, I drove 60 miles a day to get to my school, uh, 30 there and 30 back. And I listened to the Parkland, Florida parents after it happened in February. And I was bawling to and from my workplace every day for a solid two weeks. I didn't want to go in my classroom. The state of education was just too much for me in a place that's gun loving, not to mention in a place where they might want to arm us with guns, right? So I'm like fuming over all of this stuff. And so how I became to be the leader in Arizona is I'm the one who made that Facebook page from the beginning. So I watched West Virginia. I watched Oklahoma. I watched Kentucky. I actually, um, Dr. Lois Weiner uh, posted something on Badass Teachers Association, huge giant Facebook group, 62,000 members. And she posted something about the West Virginia teachers. And she said, which state is going to be next? And in the comments, I wrote, I wish it was AZ Psy. And then Lois wrote me back. Well, why can't it be? And then Dan DiMaggio from Labor Notes came in. Yeah, why can't it be, Rebecca? And then Jay O'Neill from West Virginia came in. Yeah, Rebecca, if you want any help, just call us. And so I got Dan DiMaggio in my back pocket now going, here, read this Chicago Teachers Union book. (laughs) And me laughing hysterically because he has no idea who I am. And I was like, Dan, I know what to do. I'm from Chicago. And he was just like, what? You know, and so I had all these, these, it it just like, it was his. That sounds like a classic movie line, by the way. I know what to do. I'm from Chicago. Like that sounds like a great line that could fit in lots of contexts. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Right. But so I, so I had some folks like sending me, you know, info dance, like read this book, secrets of a successful organizer. I've like, I already have that book. He gave me, you know, the CTU strike book. I already have that book. And so it was just this like, way that I became connected to everybody because of this one post by Lois. And so from there, I, you know, hung out with Jay O'Neill in the West Virginia page for a while. I hung out in the Kentucky page for a while. I hung out in the Oklahoma teachers page for a while. And it, I just, I went for it basically on March 2nd, two weeks after Parkland, Florida, because I had just had enough and I didn't know where it was going to lead. And I basically did it by myself. And it turned out that I met all the people that became the nine major leaders through the Facebook page. And we began organizing like two days later. And I I really kind of just offered my mind and my abilities. um, And I became the actions coordinator. And it just kind of all is history from there, quite frankly. (laughs) Wow. Just real briefly, it seems amazing to me how with the thin line between kind of despair and crumbling under the pressure and the terrible conditions in the mountain, I think we all have a sense for this kind of escalating, uh, you know, the world conditions, our, our personal conditions, everything's getting worse and worse and worse. But then there's this moment where you, you, your frustration and your kind of what the Greeks would call thumos, your spirited passion uh, was aired in, in a venue that others connected to. And, and like that moment turned that energy and channeled those experiences. And, and everything you've experienced relationally in a way that was like super productive. And, and, and that's like, I think there's a huge lesson there and how contingent and like 
fragile it is for the, the very like leaders and forces that empower others and transform conditions for people could have, you know, been alienated to the degree that they give up. Like it's so close, but then there's so much hope in that story too, right? How many people are waiting to have that moment, right? Yeah. So, so, so that's pretty cool. I mean, you know, that, that, that's, uh, <laughs> the line between despair and empowerment, right? Uh, it, it, if I can follow up about, you know, Ryan's question on, um, on like the, the, the current kind of yep. corporate speak about, uh, you know, the future workers of the world and whether they're learning what, what needs to, to happen, right? It, it reminds me that it might be related to your story about the, the kids basically being forced into your room because it's kind of almost like they want you to just babysit, you know, the workers' kids or, or the owners' kids so that the owners and the workers can do their thing, uh, as much as they care about the experience of the kids in, in that setting. Um, so what did you realize about this kind of propaganda and, and how do you combat that kind of narrative to, to help people see what's really going on, what the real motivations are in the system, right? Oh yeah, that one is, yes. So, um, the learning loss narrative, uh, we saw coming a mile away. Um, anytime there is a disaster, right? We know there's going to be folks who profit off of it, Right. So it's just a matter of waiting to see who it's going to be and where the messaging comes from. And it was the ed tech private companies who are really pushing this behind the scenes. Um, folks that uh, want everything to be digitalized, personalized learning. Oh, we'll catch your kids up, right? We'll get it done so fast. This personal learning um you know, mechanism we have that identifies your students' needs and then adapts the curriculum to their needs is total nonsense. I have used these programs as a math educator my entire career. They are great for practice, but really, if we truly believe that that system can do what it says, then why do we need educators at all, right? Because it's not true. We know it's not true. We are a variable that is the strongest variable in any kid's life is building a relationship with the teachers. That is what student achievement is based off of. And so, you know, I organize on a national level too with National Educators United, which is a group of us from across the nation that have these Educators United groups that are trying to unify and, and push back at the federal level also. And so, you know, to combat the learning loss, we really try to flip the narrative as much as we could, right? But there's powerful forces. All of the, um, oh my gosh, all the acronyms are now fading from my mind. One of the pockets of cash from the federal government was tied to 20% learning loss. The funds that were given to schools, I don't know if it was ESSER 1 or ESSER 2, I can't remember, but schools um, that use these funds, 20% of them have to be earmarked for learning loss. So now we have this massive national propaganda, right? That learning loss is this thing and now we must fund it in order for the kids to make up that gap. So in every department of ed across the nation, right at the state level, this is language that was coming out even here in Arizona, uh, learning loss. And so I think for us, what we try to remind folks as educator organizers is that students are developing at different rates, no matter what, no matter if there's a pandemic, no matter if it's traditional time, whatever, no matter what, and that the standards that we use and standards are 
at every grade level, what does a kid need to know and be able to do by the end of that grade level? Those are created by humans. That means they are social constructs that can be adapted, they can be modified and changed as needed. We adapt new stand or adopt new standards every five to seven years. Well, if we can do that every five to seven years, we certainly can do it now because those were made by people for society to help with developmentally appropriate knowledge and skills the kids need at that grade level. So for us, it was more about saying we need to love the kids. We need to support their emotional state rather than trying to force these ridiculous social constructs that are just there as a guide. My kids are in Montessori. They're in a first through third classroom. It's a completely different standard because they know in a first through third grade cycle, kids can move up and back as they need to because that's how people learn. There's literally a book of 30 years of research called How People Learn that tell us we learn best through experiences by applying what we've learned in classrooms to actual real life, authentic learning. And so it is complete baloney this narrative of learning loss, what was lost was time in a classroom. Did the kids have different styles of learning and things? Yes, my kids were home for the entire year, over a year, a year and a half of school. And my husband taught them, he is not an educator. He is a, a, a worker at Trader Joe's, right? And he did this and what they've learned with him is good enough because they were loved, they were cared for, and they had a stable home during that time. And that's all that mattered. And now they're back in school and they're doing just fine. So it's it's really a ridiculous narrative because you can't lose learning. Learning is always <laughs> forward first and foremost. It can't be taken away. Yeah, it's a kind of becoming, right? It's not. It's not a fixed uh, entity that, that you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the way that we become, the way that we learn, uh, it should be different in different times, like in a pandemic. And so I, I don't know, Max, if th- this resonates with you, but the the idea that capitalism wants the return to normal, uh, to to just ignore the death, suffering, and lives of uh, the students, the families, the the teachers, the parents who uh, are expected to have the same, you know, metrics achieved and everything else as normal, despite, you know, the, the million lives lost in this country and however many people disabled. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's so gross. And I think you, you might have even called it disgusting, Rebecca, in the interview that this kind of talk, but it's indicative, I would imagine, Max, of lots of um, conversations you've had with workers, Right. In terms of the way that workers are kind of disciplined in, in various um, disparate contexts into um, internalizing that abuse and, and making that feel like, oh, I guess that's what I have to put up with. Right. I have to be treated this way. Yeah. I mean, there's there's so much here. And I guess like I wanted to start by just saying how excited I am, like that people finally get to hear Rebecca, <laughs> right? I mean, like, um, <clears throat> again, this is like one of the, um, and I guess like if you're in the organizing world, you're in the educating world, you, you know Rebecca quite well. But for those who don't, right, I remember after recording that interview, I was like, I, it's killing me that people are going to have to wait like a year and a half or that I'm going to have to wait a year and a half for this fucking interview to finally <laughs> get out there and i like and i just that i guess this speaks to to ryan's original question right is like 
it was also like as an editor, uh, it's exceedingly hard um, to take the kinds of conversations that I try to have on working people and for this book and translate it into readable text that is both easy to read, but as faithful as possible to the original conversation, to people's individual word choices and speech patterns and so on and so forth. That's what was the most time consuming part of this goddamn book. But I tried to do it justice. But even then, I mean, like there's so much tone that you don't get. So I hope folks can listen to this and then go back and and read the interview and and make sure that you're reading it with that essential fire and urgency that, frankly, you should be reading all of these interviews with, especially Rebecca. So I just wanted to note that um, as we move forward in that interview. And this is my way, my meandering way of getting to your question, Alexi. But like on the way there, one of the things that Rebecca and I talked about in that interview for this book that really struck me is um, she she said, I believe, like she was like, by January 2020, like we had all heard of COVID. And as educators, we were we were basically sitting there looking at each other because it, it's like that movie situation where you're like all of the under chronic underfunding, under resourcing, under staffing, all of the ways that public education has been gutted and beaten uh, for for decades is about to make us so much less capable of handling this than we should be. And we can see that coming. And we, we can see the issues that are going to arise when people like we, we know what's going to happen. We know that when the system buckles, when all of these gaps in our resources start to show, we're going to get blamed for that because teachers always get fucking blamed for it. Right. You know, it's never it's never the governors who may who want to like go to war with teachers. It's never shithead mayors like Lori Lightfoot who want to like make a career out of vilifying their local teachers union. It's never them or the people who are actually responsible for gutting public education that get blamed for things like this. It's always going to be the workers. It's always going to be the teachers. And it was just really um, powerful to hear Rebecca in that conversation say, like, we saw this coming and we didn't have a whole lot of time to plan for it, but we did the best that we could. But I think that the the points that she raises in that interview, I won't give them all away, are really essential for anyone listening to this who is currently caught up in the learning loss debate, you know, or the public discourse, right? Another point that Rebecca makes in the interview that I think is just so crucial is that when we were kind of going back and forth in state, state after state in this country about um, is is now the safe time to go back to in-person schooling? Um, basically, it was like a, it was like every state was like spinning the the wheel of fortune wheel and saying, like, let's see if this works. And then a bunch of people get sick and then we close down again. And like it was it was really like gross, morbid situation because so many mayors, governors, uh, uh, superintendents, principals, yada, yada, like so many people saw it as an opportunity to advance their own career by being the person who did it right, because in their mind. There was nothing to lose because if you if you tried it, if you open a school district back up and 
it turned into a massive COVID, you know, like uh, explosion and you had to reclose, you're in no worse of a position than you were before. And basically everyone else is in that boat. So like you don't learn, you yourself don't lose any like political clout. All the while you're playing Russian roulette with people's lives, right? That's what we kept forgetting here. Um, People like Rebecca, people like uh, if you're listening to this, your kid, right, who's going to school, even you, if you're sending kids to school who are coming back and getting you sick. So it was just this reckless, uh, 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 like horrific, drawn out process of of just seeing what happens, regardless of like what the outcomes were and all the debates justifying this move or that were in such bad faith, because, again, it ultimately boiled down to like. Who's going to be able to make a name for themselves by doing this right or standing up to the unions or what have you, right? All the while people got sick, all the while more people died. We do not know what the long-term effects are going to be. But again, I, I stress that like the debates around that time, 2020, 2021, Right. It was all about, again, learning loss. It was about what is going to be the the psychological damage to students who have to spend this crucial year or two at home. And of course, Rebecca and I talk about it. Of course, everyone's worried about that. And she's like, trust me, no one's like apart from parents, no one's more worried about that than our than your teachers. Like, because we have to teach them every day. If we can't, if they're like psychologically damaged, we can't do our jobs and we're the ones who have to deal with all that. So the thought that somehow teachers don't care about this is just batshit crazy. But what Rebecca, the, sorry, I'm, I hope I'm doing justice here, Rebecca, but what Rebecca said that goes back to, again, that chronic under-resourcing, that chronic long-standing attack on public education and public sector workers, especially teachers, what she pointed out was she was like, if you actually cared, and the you with a capital Y, like you shitheads at Fox News, you like angry ass parents who don't even have kids who go to this school, like you kid, <laughs> you parents who send your kids to private school, but suddenly like have made this like, you know, your your crusade to fight um, because you hate public school teachers, so on and so forth. You're all talking about how much you care about the psychological condition of, of students at this time. Why didn't you care about it when we were shouting for the past two decades that we have like one counselor for our entire district circling around like this or that school? The, the counselor's only going to be here between like one and three on a Tuesday. So if you're going to have a mental breakdown, you better hope it happens on that day in that time when there's someone here to deal with it. If you cared about learning loss, why haven't you been listening to teachers screaming for years about how they can't effectively teach a, a classroom full of 35 plus students. You cannot, there's no human being alive who can give the kind of deep attention and care to every student that they want to when they have those big class sizes. The same way that healthcare workers are saying, we cannot give the kind of care to our patients that we have been trained to give. That people like Zeni Triumfor Cortez, who I also interviewed for this book, she makes this point better than I ever could. She's like, we are there saying like, we are trained to do this job. We know how well we can do it. We know what it takes to do it well. And yet hospitals administrators are piling more patients onto us. We're being chronically understaffed. Again, our schedules are being all messed up and we are driving so many people out of the profession, which is just making that problem worse. Patients are suffering. Workers are suffering. So if you guys actually cared about any of this stuff, then why are you supporting or why are you not fighting harder against 
all of the systemic and systematic ways that we are making it impossible for teachers to actually do their jobs and let alone to live a comfortable, dignified life while doing it. Preach, brother, yeah. because th- it's not actually about the kids. As, as you point out, Rebecca, if it were, then not just counselors, but nurses would be in these schools, right? In a pandemic, if you actually cared about the health and well-being of the students, that would be an obvious and easy, simple, straightforward thing to do. You would properly fund things. You would, you would care. And so this is what the kids would call concern trolling, right? This is, this is not a true interest in the students and their well-being. And, uh, and that's really important to highlight because it, 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 it distracts from where we need to focus our energy on the real flourishing of, of workers, kids, and, and everyone, right? Yeah. Actually, let, let me just barge in here <clears throat> to, to make a related point and a question for you, Rebecca, you know, that, that's in this, that's in this whole discourse, you know, about the sort of remote, remote problems, learning loss, like first grade students are not doing well looking at the iPad that I can absolutely believe. Um, but, you know, you talk about these ed tech guys jumping in and they're like, oh, we have the magic solution. We're going to tailor all this using machine learning or fucking artificial intelligence or whatever. And like, that's going to s- solve all of our problems. But then at the same time, you look at the test scores and the test scores have fallen because there hasn't been like proper education in the classroom. And it strikes me that particularly science and mathematics is an area where the actual labor of the teacher is incredibly important. Like if it were possible for you to just like jack into the computer and read any of the hundreds of public domain textbooks that are available to anybody, like you would not have any need for math, math and science teachers. And yet, actually, that's where teachers are most important. And specifically, emotional labor is important because you have to teach people not to be afraid of math, not to not to develop a complex like I had when I was sort of in high school, you know, and I um, made a connection with a real college professor who was sort of a hippy dippy, uh, you know, kind of absent minded professor type of guy who taught me that it's okay to struggle to not understand things and to actually like think about stuff for a while and not get it and to still, and you know, that sort of like coaching and helping people to like, like move. I'm sure that you as a math and science teacher are very familiar with that type of phenomenon of like that, that if you want to become, you know, like a hardcore tech bro, like computer programmer type of guy, you need a great deal of emotional coaching to get you like in a state to where you can actually perform that type of labor. And so the, the teacher in their emotional capacity and also their, you know, technical intelligence, like that is just so important and it's so under-recognized, it feels like to me. Well, I think that's the reason we will never be outsourced. Right. It is <laughs> yeah. really because when we think of, um, you know, or automated or all of these things, like we are positioned where we're positioned because of our care work. I know that care work can have a negative connotation because it relates to, you know, decreases in pay. And this is women's work and this is a you know majority, you know, women's profession. And I get all of that. But what makes us unique is that care aspect. Right. And it helps us. And yes, I taught math and science my entire life. And I'm very proud 
to be one of those teachers who kids come to sixth grade and go, I hated math before I met you, before you taught me through an inquiry-based approach based on research, right, of how people actually learn. Instead of telling me what to do, you allowed me and guided my brain to engage in a productive struggle so that I could make sense and then apply it later. So I think the emotional state of everything is literally what we were screaming about during the pandemic. All we need is love and comfort right now. Kids need to be safe. They need to be loved. They need to know grandma's okay and grandpa's okay and all their families that have to be out in the world because capitalism is trash and they're being forced back into their essential work. We just needed the kids to be okay. And that's where we serve in the best capacity, right? We are the social emotional guardians of the kids. And that you cannot take away from us. It will never, that is one way we will always win. And that is something that will be steadfast forever, right? And so I do want to touch upon one more thing that happened besides the ed tech people is the Betsy DeVosses of the world and the American Federation of Children, who is no friends to public education and actively and intentionally and aggressively tries to defund it. Um, they, and Arizona was ground zero for this. And I don't know what you all know about this, but I'm going to introduce you to micro schools. Oh, learning loss, learning loss. Ooh, hot ticket button item here. DeVos swoops in with the Walton Foundation and all these people. Oh, we're going to open up micro schools, right? So, of course, where do they try this nonsense to begin with? Alec Playground here in Arizona, right? So I'm actually sitting in the house of my friend who is an organizer against one of these massive micro school contracts here in our kids um, district, Mesa Public Schools. Uh, they tried to siphon $400,000 from our school's budget to open micro schools. And the idea behind a micro school is, oh, learning loss, learning loss. Oh, we have these teachers. We call them guides. And they'll put you in a pod of eight kids or less. And they will have one-on-one -on -one teaching, right? And the way they wiggle in to steal more tax dollars, right? Because they got a billion ways to do that between vouchers and ESAs, which are empowerment scholarship accounts. They have STOs, which are student tuition organizations, and on and on and on. And so Alec, of course, and the American Federation of Children and Betsy DeVos have this brilliant idea of, oh, disaster capitalism, right? We can steal all this public money from these public districts. They're being pumped full of cash from the feds. Let's do it. And so we successfully fought back. There's actually a Truth Out article about our success here. We organized like crazy against that. Got, I think, over 80 public comments at the governing board meeting against it. And they never went through with it. So that stuff popped up here in two seconds. I could find a pod for my kids, right? And all these parents think it's the greatest thing in the world. At the same time, you don't realize it's defunding your kid's actual public school. And so we yeah. had to fight that. And it just never ended, right? So sorry. Wow. I mean, 
that's got to be the, the energy you need to keep struggling. I, I, I had a feeling Alec might come up. You want to mention real quick, uh, you know, about Alec, the lobbying firm? Because as you're describing all of this, the, these scavengers who want to just, you know, extract and rip off people uh, at the harm of the public good, it reminded me of Alec and like prison reform. You know, once once they solidly got out of, you know, got in, got in trouble for just, you know, helping Walmart employ, you know, uh, incarcerated people to make money off of that, then they're like, oh, we got in trouble for mass incarceration. Let's try to make money off of, you know, putting ankle bracelets on people and, and doing like Silicon Valley investments in like minority report style kind of like reform stuff, which is just, you know, the Foucauldian nightmare. So, so yeah, I'm not surprised at all that they came up. You, you mind telling people about Alec and, and uh, what they're about? Me? Sure. Be happy to. <laughs> Uh, so ALEC is the American Legislative Exchange Council that develops strategies and creates what's called model legislation. So they have big ticket items like public education is one of their big ticket items. Uh, private prisons, also big ticket item. Uh, so what they do is they have this huge, they're a think tank basically that builds model legislation that when enacted can be copycatted and copied nationwide in all the states. So for example, one of their public school tactics is this voucher stuff where actually we have a referendum collecting signatures right now to try to fight it for the second time. We won the first time where basically they have legislators who um, become part of their like membership. They have membership. So actually we did research a while back and 41% of our legislature are ALEC legislatures here in Arizona, 41%. Jesus. I made all kinds of funds, graphics, and all this. I did all this research and we studied ALEC Exposed is a great website. If you can look up your legislators and see who they are, go to alecexposed.com, I'm pretty sure, uh, which is really great information and really helps organizers fighting this kind of stuff. So that's a good tip. And so copycat bills. So one of our voucher bills here, I think, has been copied in over 35 states. So it's like a think tank strategy, build this legislation to find ways to steal public tax dollars because they want to privatize everything. That's the ALEC way, right? They, they want to privatize literally everything. So they will go after and target every public entity and they want public education. That's like target number one. Yeah. Um, Max, to bring you back in a little bit, um, Max, uh, tell us about this gravedigger guy. This guy was very interesting to me. He's, he seemed, uh, he seemed to be, uh, a real character. Um, Nick Gallopo, is that his name? Um, he was, so he had a fascinating story about the work of digging graves. Uh, and then also like, how that changed during the pandemic. So can you, can you tell us like about like sort of what that reveals about the kind of American, you know, the, the, the fear of death and the also commercialization of the process of having to deal with this inevitable mortality type of thing. Yeah. I mean, um, He's definitely, I mean, you know, Nick, Nick is definitely a character and like, I mean that in the Dostoevsky in sense, right? <laughs> um, Complex. Yeah. <laughs> Deep. Like, yeah. I mean, he's, he's just, um, and the, and again, like, you know, what you don't get to see on the page, um, 
and I and I guess you know a lot of people have asked me this. They're like, oh well, presumably you recorded these over audio. Are you going to release an audio book? I thought about it. Uh, I may. It would have to. It would take a while because again, there was the the process of going over these transcripts with each interviewee. Um, you know, I didn't want it to be an extractive process. I wanted it to be a collaborative story making process. I wanted every interviewee to have final say over the final version of it. Um, you know, so, so there, there is, I think, kind of like a multi-layered storytelling effect in every text transcript, whereas like the audio recordings are kind of like the first draft. Um, so, um, you know, maybe I'll release some of them if the interviewees like uh, want me to. Um, but what you don't get to hear with Nick is uh, he's got a great central New Jersey accent. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so like so when you talk to him, um, you know, just like right off the cuff, he's like, hey, you know, hey, I'm Nick Galupo. Hey. And then he just goes into this incredibly deep and complex kind of philosophy on death. On, on, like you said, Ryan, on mortality as someone who began working at a graveyard basically right out of high school, has been working there for 20 years, who even turned down a better paying, less morbid job that he was offered um, because he ultimately feels a sort of vocational duty to keep doing what he does. Um, but you can tell how much it weighs on him. Right. And and he even says, you know, in, in our conversation, right, I think it was a really it was a really big eye opener for me. Every single interview was. But this was one of the first ones I recorded for the book. And so it really, I think, set the tone for the rest of, of the book for me. Uh, and in a lot of ways, I was doing this book out of my own need to confront my own mortality. Right. Uh, as we all did. And I just a parenthesis, I do think that. Um, a lot of what we're talking about and a lot of what we're not talking about, a lot of like the societal after effects of COVID-19 really kind of go back to a population that is that was unprepared to confront its own mortality. Um, and I think we've all dealt with that in different ways, some of us better than others. Um, but, you know, Nick is someone who deals with that every day. And I think in a lot of ways he's made his peace with it. But as we talked about in that interview, you know, his job is not just to dig holes, right? And and there's so much skill, obviously, that goes into his job as uh, Rebecca's, everyone, you know, the, the, the unskilled labor is a fucking myth, right? Um, and so I think that's another thing that's beautiful about these interviews, right, is you just hear how complex and intelligent and skilled and, and incredible and deep uh, every single person is in this book and their their experiences and life paths couldn't be more different. And so that's that's always my North Star, as it were, is to honor that the the and cherish the the beauty of every living person and 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 honor their life uh, in the stories that we share on the podcast and in this book. Um, and because I think there's a real political, I think there's a, a deeply humanistic necessity for that. And I also believe that there's a deeply political need for that, right? Because, again, the less that we see our fellow workers as those 
deep human beings who are as complex as we are on the inside, the easier it becomes to treat them like shit. The easier it becomes to explain away the struggles that they're dealing with and say, oh, well, no one wants to work anymore. That's that's the problem. Right. Or teachers are just lazy, good for nothings who don't care about students. Right. You can build these bullshit narratives when you reduce the 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 humans involved into these kind of human shaped cardboard cutouts who are flat and not complex like you are. So anyway, um, going back to Nick. Right. You hear about all the skills that go into being the being a professional grave digger at um, a very particular kind of cemetery, right? He works at a cemetery where predominantly, um, you know, Jewish people who follow certain uh, ritualistic traditions that include not being buried with anything that isn't um, uh, uh, that won't decompose. Right. So um, everyone's buried in a quarter inch pine box with wooden dowels the same day that they die or at latest the next day. Right. So it's a it's a different process to your average kind of like scenic, flat, suburban type, you know, uh, 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 memorial park. Right. He's he's talking he describes it as a a. He and a number of different ways, but he's like he's like it's a fast paced construction site for the dead, I think is how he puts it. Right. So you see all the work that goes into that. But then you also in the conversation kind of think about what exactly the work is is about. Right. And I think that that was one of the things that really struck me in my conversation with Nick was um, and we talked about this was because he says, like, my job, as I see it, one of the reasons that I feel a sense of duty about this is because there's a there's a huge responsibility that you have to offer families that sense of peace as they send their loved ones off into the great beyond right that's a tremendous responsibility that nick does not take lightly and but he does say you know while my job is to provide that peace for others i have lost it because of the work that i do i no longer have that peace i've seen too much of this process and my friends and family know that and they you know we've come to deal with that but i think like that's the kind of hard one piece that that or a different kind of piece that that he talks about that that through doing this work through all the morbid you know realities that he deals with on a day-to-day basis it has given him a kind of perspective on death that i don't think many of us have because we just don't see it as up close as he does but that you know again i don't want to give too much away but it just means like he has he knows what he's about he knows what his life goal is, right? He knows who he's working for and ultimately what he needs to be happy, right? Is to take care of his family, right? And and to be with them as much as possible, to see his kid grow up and flourish. He doesn't want, you know, like a, a mansion or a fancy car, stuff like that. Again, he's like, you know, I've seen I've seen young kids come in because they got hit by a car. I've seen old people, you know, who've lived full lives. I've buried them all. And like when you see that, you just you you gain a sort of sense of enlightenment about how to live and, and what to live for that maybe a lot of folks out there don't. And I think this kind of hooks back to your other question, Alexi, about how capitalism has tried to after COVID-19 forced us in so many ways to pause from the rat race, to pause from the relentless push of productivity to acknowledge what this system tried for so long up until COVID-19 to hide from us, which is that we are essential, 
and that this system cannot function without us, right? And that, in fact, going even further, it is people. It has always been people, working people who hold the world up. It is people who took care of one another when the government failed us. It was people who took care of one another when the market failed us and just tried to pick clean the bones of the recently dead and to siphon off as much profit into the coffers of the 1% during, you know, like a worldwide crisis. It was people who kept us from falling into the abyss. And I think that you know, that is really important. And, and, and I think that we need time to talk openly about that. And I hope I've contributed something to that discussion with this book. But what I see now is capitalism is this broader capitalist society trying to essentially force us to forget all that we have learned over the past two and a half years and to just get back to being good, loyal subjects, good, workers right you know you you asked uh alexi like you know um you know th- th- you you talked about how the quite the the learning loss discussion you know is is tied into that right and and basically the metric we're saying is like well we need to get people back on track to being good uh uh, uh workers who can stock you know like all these jobs that we're saying like we can't find people for right and and what really struck me about that especially in regards to students uh, and kids after what we've all been through since tw- since early spring of 2020 is um again i think this goes to what rebecca talks about in our interview for the book is just like it it's all about where you start the clock right if you're suddenly interested in learning loss when covid-19 hits i don't believe you like i don't I don't have like I don't believe that you have a good faith interest in this debate because there's so like learning loss itself could be an interesting discussion to have if we are having an honest discussion. We are not, to be clear. Right. If we wanted to talk about how to best holistically educate young, developing human beings who grow up in different socioeconomic circumstances and need different things to be the people that they are, so on and so forth. That's the kind of discussion teachers have every goddamn day, right? But when we have that discussion in the media or when politicians are involved, it gets distorted completely. But anyway, I'll wrap up this long rant. The thing that I think about, um, again, because we have such a narrowed, limited discussion in regards to schools and students and learning loss and so on and so forth, and the impact, the long-term impact that's going to have on these future adults What I think about is what impact is everything else that they have learned and experienced through these past two and a half years? What is that going to do to them? What is that going to do to our society? Because I look at our society right now and I see a population that has realized just, again, for all the ways that we held each other together, we also saw the worst of each other and we continue to see it. Service workers got treated like dog shit by people who wanted to make a political point and and not wear a mask when they were asked to. Flight attendants have gotten brutalized. Teachers endlessly vilified, not just for fighting for safe schools, but they are being demonized as like CRT radicals or groomers who are like, you know, uh, uh, pushing their gender ideology. And people are getting hurt. The people are calling in bomb threats. To children's hospitals, people are going and doxing teachers and running them out of schools. We have seen a lot of really ugly shit, and we have seen 
in in effect, like actually how little people care about each other, how and how little faith like we've also seen how little the government or, again, the market gives a shit about our lives. They may value our labor as essential, but they do not give a shit about us. How do you unlearn that? How do you go back from that? How do you rebuild a society when people have collectively lost so much faith in the government, in each other, in the systems that we thought like were holding up a workable society or somewhat workable society before like that has been broken. Students have also experienced that. And I worry about we're talking. It's it's the same. It's like the climate change thing. We're talking about how are we going to keep the economy going when we essentially make it like we we blow up the world. Right. We're talking about how to keep good capitalist subjects going through schools when in fact, like the, the, the fabric of society is fraying, right? So I think there's, there, there, there's a larger discussion to be had here. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe to bring you in, um, Rebecca, one last time, um, I think the thing that I liked or the through line that struck me the most, at least in the, in the book, Max was the, uh, thinking about the valuation of, of work. Uh, and, and apart from, uh, money, because you talk about this gravedigger guy who works under a capitalist context. So he is, uh, you know, he's exploited, um, you know, he, he, his work conditions are terrible. Uh, and when the pandemic is, you know, you're basically just like stuffing people into virtually mass graves. You know, he has like, you know, 50 to 150 percent the number of people dying every day. And it's just like, get them in the ground. I don't care how you do it. It doesn't matter. Uh, it just has to be done. And yet at the same time, as you mentioned, uh, he he has uh, he feels that the work is meaningful because it is meaningful. It's like this is one of the most profound things that 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 happen in human society. We're talking about death and 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 dealing with grief and uh, closure for families who have lost loved ones. I mean, it doesn't get any more deeper emotionally than that. Uh, you t- you talk about this guy, uh, Kyle Killebrew. He's like a he's like a, a, a sheet metal guy, and so he makes um, big uh, brewing vats for like bourbon manufacturers and and other folks, and and he takes pride in his work. You know, it's like we, we do, we go over and above. We, we make the things that like we could, we could fudge it, but we don't because we're proud of what we make. And like, like we take, we provide meaning for, you know, ourselves. And, you know, we also, I mean, developed a reputation for ourselves in the market, but I don't think that's the main driver of that type of behavior. It's, you want to you wanna feel like you're a good person, like you're participating meaningfully in society. You're helping other people. And I feel like Rebecca with teachers, that motivation is exceptionally important. You know, I, I worked in South Africa in the Peace Corps for uh, two years and the in one of the former Bantu stands and the education system was totally dysfunctional in the, the village where I was assigned. I mean, it was essentially a, a fake school um, that, you know, teachers would just collect their paychecks and often would not show up to work at all. And when I came back to the, to the States, you know, it was like that whole process, uh, it really drove home to me the extent to which 
a functional education system depends on the uh, a spirit of core, for lack of a better word, of the teachers. You know, like these people who they they give their lives. It isn't just some cynical transaction where you're like, well, I'm going to give my money in. I'm going to put the uh, or I'm going to put the absolute least amount of work into uh, this job and get the, uh, you know, maximum paycheck out of it. You actually care about the students, you know, and so like. I've, I feel like that, you know, maybe it's a little bit lost from the pandemic, but that was. Uh, something that was demonstrated in absolutely concrete fashion during the pandemic in a way that I think most people have been able to, to, uh, had not ever been beaten over the head with hitherto. And maybe it's sort of being forgotten, but like that's what makes this sort of book so important is the reminder that like working people, they, they hold this country together. If there weren't garbage men, and women, the society would collapse in a week. And the same thing is true of teachers. So can you speak to that, Rebecca, about just like the the way that, that you maybe attempt to sort of, you know, claim this status for yourself is like, no, listen, we're not we're not just trying to sponge off the taxpayer here. We're, we are part of the foundation stones of society. And if it, like, if we don't do our jobs, then everything goes to shit. And like, how do you convince people of that? Huh? <laughs> well, one conversation at a time, obviously. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Not, every, yeah. not everybody has that mindset. And especially, you know, I was in a little bit of culture shock when I came out here, uh, being from where I'm from and the mindset that I have as a, you know, somebody who grew up in a, a union city, a union neighborhood with union, you know, friends and parents and, you know, everybody around me was in a union when I was a kid. And so I think I realized uh, just how fortunate I personally was to grow up in this kind of mentality because it really helped me come out here and, you know, fight these fights because you're right about what you said is we do care. We, we care more than anybody, just like nurses do. Right. Yeah. Um, we care so deeply, but it is also our care that, um, hinders our progress as from, as far as an organizing standpoint, because what happens, especially here is, they don't, a lot of educators did not understand that they had the power, that they can do something, that if we work together, we can make progress and pressure and push back, right? So we're all used to this kind of top-down pressure, right? Teachers are in pressure cooker situations. So are students now, right? With the, the focus on standardized testing and looking at kids like they're just data points that generate funding and that's it, Right. Um, and so we know this, we know that our, our passion and compassion for this work is why we do it. Right. I'm never happier than when I'm with kids teaching kids science. I mean, it's the best thing ever. Right. And, um, I think we're preyed upon because of that and the lack of understanding that we have the power as individuals, but certainly more as collective, to push back against these ridiculous system things, because here's a saying in the teacher world, 
we all know how bad the system is, right? It's so bad, but sometimes it seems like it's this giant wall that you can barely chip away at. And so the saying is you just close your door and teach. You don't worry about what's outside your classroom walls. You just close your door and teach. And for decades, that was the mentality and why we are in this place to begin with is because we closed our door and we can control what happens in real time in our space. Right. And we could draw upon our craft and draw upon our, you know, creative styles and put that care into how we know how to care about a classroom and get kids to move from A to B to C. But it also is our downfall, quite frankly, because we, I, don't want, I don't want to know what's going on in the outside world. I don't want to hear about the Arizona legislature anymore. It's too much. I just want to close my door and teach. And so there's, you know, it, it, I, I know a lot of nurses. I work with a NNU organizer named Elizabeth, who is incredible. And, you know, we talk about this stuff all the time of how we just do what we have to do because people rely on us, right? But we also do know that if we shut it down like we did in Arizona and we had, I think, um, one of the largest lags, uh, the NLRB put out some statistics about the longest idle time of work, the most amount of hours at one time in the last 25 years was us. We had the most idle hours. That means people not working because of our job action. And so when we look at the linchpin, right, we pull that sucker out, we hold ourselves accountable to our power and we use it, we can shut the entire nation down, right? We know that. And we had a very small taste of that in Arizona is because we are that linchpin. We're the cork in the dam. We are the ones that make this function. And it was clear as day during the pandemic. And so we let's not forget, we have to not let people forget this, that if we are not here, capitalism doesn't function. You don't work. We don't work. This shit shuts down. So, oh yeah, it strikes me, Rebecca, the affective is so important there. Like when you were talking about your students earlier and, and about how they often have to overcome fear and, and, and it must be a parallel a student who didn't think he or she could understand something then believes in themselves is empowered and is like, Oh, I can do this. I can learn. There's probably a parallel for an organizer who helps teachers or other, you know, workers overcome the fear that, and they realize that, Oh, we can win. We have power. We can change these conditions. Uh, you, you know, you and Max have this big disagreement. Max thinks service workers are the best organizers and you think teachers are. We don't have to resolve that. We want unity. We don't need to resolve that. But, uh, but there is a great parallel there that shows why teachers make for such great organizers, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. Overcoming the, like it's a relationship where you, you help people overcome their fears and empower them, right? Yeah, I'm chuckling because I have two stories to tell you about this exact thing that made me realize how important this relational organizing is. We were organized. We, we, we did an eight week organizing blitz and started with very low risk actions. Right. Let's wear red shirts together. And we had people very afraid to wear a red shirt like they were going to get in trouble. Right. So even very low risk actions, we had to find ways to open the space first and foremost Count the number of people we, we basically we ask people to map their workplaces, right? Figure out who's wearing red shirts and grow that number. And it was a lot of these questions as one of the faces of the movement here. I, I was getting pinged all day on Facebook Messenger. Am I allowed to wear a red shirt? Am I allowed to do this? And I was like, OK, 
my soul wants to scream, of course you fucking can, right? But my heart said, okay, let's look at this, right? And I, I acknowledge that it is fear, right? Just like kids in the classroom who, whatever in their life led them to this point, they have this hindrance in one way or another. Maybe a teacher said they weren't good at math. Maybe they've just always failed because the teacher didn't teach in a certain type of approach, right? And same with organizing. And I remember just having conversations and we just, I use talk moves, right? These are moves that teachers use with kids. And so my favorite talk move, it, uh, move is, um, so help me understand why you think that. Like what in your life is going on? And that's, that's how we get kids to talk is we use strategic language that prompts them to give us things we want them to think deeply about, right? It's teaching 101. So I'd say, tell me more about what you're thinking about this. Help me understand why you have this position. Okay, well, this happened or this happened or nothing's happened. And I just don't know, right? Half the time, they just don't know their rights. Great. Built a PowerPoint, sent out some Google slide decks. Here's your rights, right? Here you go. Okay, boom. Fear gone. The next one, we had folks, we asked people to um, get these chalk markers that you can write on car windows and we called it paint the state red for ed. We wanted a whole community solidarity driving down the hall, uh, highways, everywhere you went, you saw people's cars painted with red for ed stuff. And then, you know, awesome math teachers are putting graphs of funding on their cars. And then the cute little kindergarten teachers have these like adorable, you know, kids holding hands. It was just the most brilliant creative strategy we came up with. And I had a car painting event where we got in the community. We all wore our shirts. We're making posters for a rally, handing out flyers, informational picketing. And this girl's like, am I allowed to paint my car? And I'm again, the, the fire in me, because I am a firecracker, was like, what do you mean? But I went into teacher mode and I said, OK, um, do you own the car? Uh, is this a car you lease? <laughs> is this a car that the school owns? And it turned out it was her personal car. And I said, well, that means you own it. And it's personal property. And if it's personal property, then you're allowed to do, you know, I had to move that person from A to B to C because they were terrified of showing up and putting their car in the parking lot. Right. And they didn't want to be alone. And I said, well, you know, if you got other people from your school here, we'll paint their cars, too. And you guys can all go together or I'm happy to come to your school. Let's do a painting party together in the parking lot because parking lots are OK. You can't do anything on school grounds, but you can certainly do it on the, you know, and again, showing people their rights. So it is about empowering. That's what teaching's about. And that's what organizing is about, right? Empower people. We gave them the tools and said, you can do this. And then we modeled that. We modeled it just like teaching. I would go and do a strategy at my campus and say, here I am. Here's me. Here's all my gear. Here's how you do a walk-in, right? Watch how we do it. Bam. You, you can do it. So we call called upon our teaching strategies. We called upon our, you know, pedagogical knowledge. How do you get people to join in? How do you build community? And how do you teach people in the way that make it make sense? So Max, that's why I think teachers are the best organizers. <laughs> let, let, let me, uh, if I can uh, ask a last question of Max, um, that, was, that was awesome. Um, that connects to all that because, you know, in the book, Max, I think it's Courtney asks, uh, do you organize? Are you an organizer? You'd be a great organizer. And, and I'm thinking about the way that Rebecca has been talking about uh, love and relationships in teaching and in organizing. And it seems to me that your book and your podcast and your project is very much about relationships, love, education, 
And it struck me both. I, I do think your book, by the way, Max, even though it doesn't have your, your sexy deep voice, because uh, it's, it's a book, but uh, <laughs> it, it does capture, I think your motivation and the, the kind of origin story is mentioned where, where you first interviewed your dad. And Nick, the very first chapter mentions, you know, he says, he's so grateful. Thank you. Uh, I never get a chance to tell these stories. I never get to talk about my life to anyone. And, and I think there's something about love and relationships and the solidarity we all need that maybe I'm going to ask if it motivated you and if, and if it's something that for Rebecca and others is afforded them in these interviews, something that capitalism does not often provide, a chance for people to tell their unique stories and to be loved by being allowed to be heard. And, and in that relation, and, and you're, you're beautiful at that, Max, both in the book and in podcasts, giving people the space, really listening and cultivating the relationships that people don't usually get in uh, the work they do, except in the fact that they give the love to others, right? But they don't often get to be loved, right? And and I think that the personal and political come together beautifully in your project, in your book, in your podcast in this way. And I, I, and I wonder if you might uh, talk about that. You're gonna make me cry over here, man, but I, I do really appreciate that. And, um, I think you're exactly right. I mean, that is where it comes from. You know, the, the book or the podcast was born out of a deep love, uh, for my father, Jesus Alvarez and, and, um, a deep sense of pain that I felt, um, being his son, seeing what he was going through, seeing how much he was punishing himself, seeing how much that was hurting my mom how much she was hurting uh, herself, how much we were all hurting, you know, 10 years ago and, and how much our inability to talk about it openly with one another was creating this sort of airlocked seal inside of us. So whatever was in there was just turning to acid and, and really just corrosively eating away at our, our hearts, our souls and, and, our ability to function socially, right? And so, you know, I, that's where the podcast came from. And it was when I realized just how um, much someone that I thought I knew so well had to say when they were given that gift of just me sitting down and saying, I just want to listen. Like, I just want to talk about you for two hours. Um, seeing having lived with my dad like you know my entire life up to that point um just having seen that sort of reaction in him in him clued me into just uh, how much everyone around us must be sitting on and and also how powerful it could be if we start to unlock that if we collectively start doing the work to open that parts of uh, those parts of ourselves and our fellow workers Right. You know, I, I know that especially on the left, it's it's uncool and unsexy to be such a um, I don't even know. I mean, like just, you know, like to to, to not be cynical about that. Right. To be uh, a true believer in the power of that connection and uh, the power of people, if you actually just show that you do care for them. And you do love them and you do value them as human beings, you know, like just I, I will no matter how dark the world gets, I will always believe in that. Right. And and honestly, it's because of people like Rebecca that I'm 
doing the work that I do. You know, people ask me like there are really important distinctions that I draw when I say like I take my inspiration. What I do is what organizers do every day. Right. So in a way, like I'm I'm kind of bringing the type of conversational style that you need to have to be a good organizer um, because you need to see other workers, not just as name tags and job titles, but as human beings. Right. Who have reasons for thinking the things that they do, like Rebecca says. Tell me why you think that. Let me tell me more about you so I can better understand why you think the way you do, why you act the way you do, how we can connect better on this or that thing. Right. This is the 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 real work that so many organizers who never get podcasts or book deals do on a day-to-day basis. And I take my inspiration from their craft, their craft of loving and, and listening to other people. What I think I did realize, I, I wanted it to be that in the first season of Working People. And I came to realize the limits of what we do in media, because I tried to maintain those relationships with the people that I was interviewing and I realized that I had to do one or the other. I could either keep doing these interviews with as many workers as I could, or I could essentially stop and focus on the people that I had the human capacity to continue talking to and continue checking in on. Like, of course, I still check in with a lot of folks that I talked to, but I realized that I was never going to be able to be an organizer in that regard. Right. And so what I hope that I do the, the, the mission that I carry that, again, I take from the organizing world is that my understanding of what makes a good organizer, my understanding of what makes anyone a good participant in and steward of the movement is that they bring more people into the movement. That's what I hope I'm doing with this work. I hope that just by having these conversations, it inspires one fucking person or two people maybe to talk, to turn to their parents, their grandparents, their co-workers, their friends, and just start talking to them in this way, right? And start learning more about one another and realizing that, in fact, there's so much there sitting all around us inside the hearts and chests and brains of our fellow workers. And that reminds us what we're fighting for and who we're fighting for. And it also, as Rebecca said, reminds us of how much goddamn power we have if we work together. Yeah. I think that's a good place to end on, you know. Um, If there's anything, you know, in a maybe a little bit more cynical sense that the pandemic taught us is that if people don't go to work, this this thing all goes, we all go down there. uh, And and there's power in that. And it requires organization. Um, But Max Alvarez and Rebecca... Garelli, um, thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate it very much. Thanks so much for having us, guys. And thanks for listening, everybody. We will see you in the next episode.